Hello and welcome to Simply Why. I am your host, Connor Reed. Simply Why is a podcast brought to you by Indiana Wesleyan University, where we do a deep dive into the stories behind our outcomes. Our guests share the choices that changed their lives, the paths that led them to where they are, and of course, the why at the heart of it all. Our guest today is Dr. Vincent Baycoat. Dr. Baycoat is a professor of theology and director of Center for Applied Christian Ethics at Wheaton College. He is also a prolific author and speaker, having published and contributed to multiple books and articles that have appeared in magazines such as Books and Culture and Christianity Today. He also hosts a podcast called The Link, Bridging Faith and Life with Dr. Vincent Baycoat. Dr. Baycoat, thank you so much for being on the show today. Great to be with you. All right. Well, let's just dig in with some deep philosophical questions right off the bat. All right. Question number one, heavy metal or jazz? Oh, oh, that's hard. Because the metal phase never ended. But I listen to more jazz these days than metal. But you never know what you're going to hear when you come in my office. It could be electronic. It could be jazz. It could be funk. It could be R&B. But it skews slightly more toward jazz these days. Right out the gate. That's really hard. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Question number two. Paul Thomas Anderson or Wes Anderson? Probably Paul Thomas. All right. And question number three. Iron Maiden or David Bowie? Uh, I'm going to have to go with Bowie. I mean, I'm still mourning his death. So it was amazing. It's one of the top five shows I've ever seen. There's a reason why he was a legend. All right. Well, let's just dig in a bit to you and your career. So whenever you first went to college, you didn't start off as wanting to be a theologian. And I thought I heard that you wanted to be a vet. Is that correct? Correct. How did you kind of shift to more of the theology side than the biology side? I was always interested in spiritual things, even going back to being a kid. Part of my inclinations include an academic inclination. Public speaking type things were always something that were, I think, I, I really liked. And honestly, it really wound up being, I would say, a vocational discernment type of thing that happened because I began to think about whether or not to be in what I would now call some semblance of full-time Christian service during my junior year of college. Even when I graduated, I wasn't sure whether I was going to go to veterinary school or go to seminary. I was leaning more towards seminary. And then at the time, I was thinking mainly about being pastoral ministry. When I went to Trinity, I had started to feel that pastoral ministry had some resonance with who I am, but not a complete fit. And I couldn't quite articulate what that was. And when somebody told me, that's a guy like you ought to get a PhD, that really sort of opened the pathway to, for me towards what I'm doing. Even though that took further discernment to understand that I didn't have to both be a full-time pastor and be a minister. And, and I think part of the reason I felt that was because and I felt a certain expectation and a bit of responsibility with that expectation. But I also, I was always going to be a professor who wasn't just strictly an academic, who was also one to be involved in people's lives, do a lot of spiritual mentoring, uh, and definitely somebody who wanted to do a lot of preaching and public speaking types of things. So that was always going to be a part of what I did. I know that that's huge for you of also applying what you learned to your life. So how do you kind of balance that then of like the orthodoxy and the orthopraxy of how do we actually take this and implement it into our lives? The way I put it is is this way. Jesus said, follow me. But he didn't say, only think about me when you follow me. The following is not an intellectual disengagement. 
I think in terms of vocation, some people are going to be more reflective. Some people are going to be more active. Some people are going to be closer to having those together. To me, it's always been important that what Christians believe is also creating a trajectory of practice. We don't believe just to think about stuff. We believe to become and to practice our lives in certain kinds of ways. So to me, that was always something that was a connection. To me, the bifurcation, that separation between theology and ethics, always aggravated me. In fact, I remember, as much as I appreciated my seminary education, I also remember thinking, yes, we know this. How is this also being lived out? How is this being expressed? And so to me, a living faith is very important. A living faith, there's something to the faith. Got to think about it. Got to understand what it is. But you're living it. So you're not just sitting around living reflective life like a hermit uh, or an ancient ascetic who's living by themselves. Now, there may be some people whose vocations involve that, and it's a lot of uh, prayer and solitude, but that would be a very exceptional vocation. I think the typical vocation of the Christian is one where what we believe and what we do ought to be woven together. Hmm. Yeah, and I know that one of the topics that you talk on a lot, and that I remember you speaking at my alma mater for, is about how do we engage in politics? Because I think growing up for me, it's like, oh, well, you're a Christian. You don't don't worry about politics. You know, that's worldly stuff doesn't apply to us. But then, you know, with all of the different election cycles that have happened and so much of it coming to the forefront, how do you kind of then find theology in how we approach things like politics or policy or just the government in general? Sure. So first, I would say, depending upon where you are, your political possibilities will raise differently. Even with all the challenges that we have, you have more political agency than most people have ever had in world history. Now, the fact that agency doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want, but it does mean that you can be a contributor. That doesn't mean everybody needs to run for office, but it does mean that some people, maybe they should. I think the big picture when we're thinking about politics, we're thinking about how we manage our life together, sort of outside of the family. We have a common life among the rest of us. And how do we discern that? And how do we discern, you know, is it time to make the streets wider? When does a stop sign become a stoplight? Uh, when do you need a playground? When do you need a bigger school? When do, you, when do you decide how you're going to pay for more programs in the school? All those types of things. So there are ways that we're figuring out our common life together, ideally trying to seek the good of everyone. If you think about that kind of seek the good of everyone, think of it this way. How is that one version of how we are thinking about how to bring neighbor love to people? Paul says in Romans 13, love does no harm to a neighbor. Right? So if love does no harm to a neighbor, then we are thinking about how am I seeking good for my neighbors? And if all the horizontal dimensions of commandments are really expressions of neighbor love, how are we thinking about the way that we put that in practice? None of that requires having to be a political animal per se. But some people they really have a sense of vocation in a context like the United States where they want to be, in part, a public servant. And so they want to do that. And some people really do want to be public service. It's complicated by the fact that there are other people, when they want to be in politics, they think about power, they think about influence, they think about their brand. And so, yes, it's a complicated domain, like every other domain, even academia, believe it or not. All these domains are complicated. And so, complication does not mean, oh, it's complicated, therefore check out. The question is, how am I discerning with my gifts, talents, and abilities 
the best place to like think about in recent months. How am I thinking about what my Ephesians two ten works are? The works that God's prepared for me to do. What are those things? They're not things I do to earn my salvation, but they are things that God has for me to do now that I am somebody that God has sent. And so how am I discerning what that is? For some people, that may mean that part of their vocation is being an office holder, maybe or an office holder for a while. I think in terms of the general being a citizen, there's at least being attentive as a citizen, at least trying to vote at least most of the time, and thinking about not just your own interests, but how are you thinking about the world around you or, or your local, your locality? And what are ways that maybe at least by your voting and maybe by occasionally reaching out to somebody, uh, a, a representative, that maybe you want to say, hey, here's something I care about. You at least want to tell them you care about it. In other cases, you may have ideas about what you can do about the thing. So all those types of things, I think, show us that politics per se is not problematic. We need to understand that it is one of the things that we expect to be a possibility if we have agency. But the possibility doesn't mean that it's easy because we live in a world where things are complicated, where sin is real. And so we should be surprised that when we, when we were in any domain that we discovered that sin is real in these domains as well. I remember whenever you spoke at my alma mater, like one thing that I just think about all the time was that if you really want to make like a difference around you, don't just wait like every four years for the next election cycle, but get involved in local politics and in what your community is doing. And I think that is just incredible. So then how do you think education kind of plays a role in that as well? And, and just in general of what you're teaching? Education in general is helping people understand the world that they're in and how to think about the world that you're in and how, and how to know about people besides yourself that the world that you're in. And how do you understand people who are not like yourself in ways where you can be curious about them and you want to ask more questions about them rather than make assertions about them. If you have a curiosity mindset, then when it comes to the kind of person you're being formed into by your education, it can make you, when it comes to the political realities, when you're thinking about whatever's going on in the town, the state, the, the nation, etc., the world, then the question to be asking is, you know, what's going on that make this created these challenges to our political life? And might be some ways to begin to addressing some of those things. We do have to be careful to not try to have any kind of messianic pretensions about, well, you know, if we just did X, Y, Z, then everything would happen. We've been waiting for that since Genesis 3, so I think we need to set that kind of ambition aside. But it's not either a triumphalist, complete transformation of everything, or a checking out. It really is a complicated involvement in a world that's been complicated ever since the fall. But we know that at least sometimes things happen that are improvements. You know, the day that we're recording this is the day after uh, Juneteenth. Now, here's an interesting thing about Juneteenth. Of course, the sad thing is that Juneteenth is celebrated. Why? Because over two and a half years after the emancipation, people discovered that they should have been seen two and a half years before. But the flip side of it is, is that it actually happened. In 1850, I don't know who in the United States was thinking, okay, 15 years from now, slavery is over. At least, at least channel slavery is, I mean, you know, because industrialization and other things came, child labor, all the kinds of things, like slavery by another name, eventually Jim Crow showed up, et cetera. But what child slavery was, and what it was in 1850, that was behind us in a way. Now, it reverberates 
even to today, what was going on and all that. But there were new possibilities. And that's a major thing. And so those major things can happen. And even if you're Jim Crow, Jim Crow, by law, doesn't exist anymore. Maybe occasionally places where people are still experiencing that. But you don't have a world where people just think, well, Jim Crow is just the way it is. Several people just where I was. And this is what's best for everybody, whatever that's supposed to be. There are things that improve. We don't have to think that improvement is either total transformation or nothing. There are, you know, sometimes incremental is an indication of things improving. So we, we should obviously hope for the greatest transformation, but be happy when we get any transformation. And so I think we sort of we slowly keep your hand into the plow. And, you know, if we get some kind of the occasional revival by legislation, well, that would be a nice thing. But I would put a lot of hope in that. But sometimes you do get big changes. But most changes are slower and incremental. But changes do happen. So that, I think that should remind us that, okay, there's something here that can happen. Because something can happen, then, oh, then maybe I should think about being more hopeful about this, even though there's a lot to give me kind of earned cynicism about people doing their worst. That's not the whole story if I'm going to look at everything that's there. Look at everything that's there. There are things that are improvement. And so there should be a kind of optimism. Well, kind of shifting gears a little bit to your career as a theologian. So how did you kind of come about that? And I, I know that people oftentimes, whenever they think theologian, they think like a monk locked away in a tower, just pouring yes. over the Bible for 10 hours a day. How did you find your route to being a theologian and how do you sustain the intellectual side and practice? I tell my students, everybody's a theologian. Even atheists are theologians. I think they're bad ones generally. But they're, they're theologians because they're always, they seem to be talking about God all the time. So they are dealing with theological questions. Those things come to all of us. So everybody does theology in some way. In terms of as a vocation, as my profession, my career, in a way, even when I wanted to be a veterinarian, I was still kind of always thinking about these things in a kind of theological type of way. I mean, it was a very rudimentary theological kind of way, but it was there. And I always was trying to understand, oh, well, there's this denomination that thinks about this in one way. These Christians think about it in another. Why do they do that? Why do they believe that? Where do these practices come from? So part of it was just the curiosity about those types of things. And then I think it wound up being big picture, a matter of thinking, hey, you know what? Theology at its best is knowing God. Now, knowing God means God has revealed himself, asks us to respond to how he's revealed himself, what's going on with all the, the things that God has said and done. How do we talk about all of that? How's the talking about all of that something that is not something that's irrelevant to most people, but it's actually more relevant to people than they recognize? And so over time, it really became an interest in being kind of like a public relations person for theology. How people understand that theology is not about your escape from life. It's really about understanding how God has revealed himself, and God wants you to know him, and God cares about life, he cares about all of life, life is his idea. So how do we understand that? How do we participate in that? How do we practice that? So for me, that's really kind of how it developed. So th that sort of way of thinking about the thing I just described, when I was in seminary, I couldn't tell you that. That was big picture kind of how I was thinking about stuff. It's always been a living faith. And a living faith gave me to think about 
doctrine. The question is, what is it at its best? At its best, it is helping us to know God. In fact, you know, whatever anybody thinks about John Calvin, you know, particularly say at Wesleyan University, perhaps, at least let's acknowledge this. What are his institutes about? They're not about how many different ways can I get you to think about predestination. They're really about two things, true knowledge of God and true knowledge of ourselves. And if that's really kind of what's going on. You may disagree with how Calvin cashes all that out, but that fundamental premise, knowing God, knowing ourselves, knowing about how to go about our lives with the God who's revealed himself to us, that's basically what we're doing. I've kind of all thought about that in different ways since college, and then it sort of coalesced for me in terms of knowing that for myself, well, why am I a theologian and not a biblical scholar right now? First of all, open parenthesis, theologians do Bible, okay? So let me just point that out. Some people think theologians, oh, you're like, just like creating categories and stuffing stuff in your categories. How about the fact that uh, not at our best, that's not what we're doing? I'll close parenthesis on that, but that was my sort of like brief defense uh, of the- theologians against certain accusations from some biblical scholars. But theology at best, you are doing this kind of synthesizing work. Here's how God's revealed himself. How do I talk coherently in different ways or in bite-sized ways about how God has revealed himself? And so that's going to require synthesizing, doing the synthesizing work, is making coherent work of communicating in times and places and in periods of time, how to talk about certain dimensions of what God has revealed. It's been years to understand how to describe it this way, but my mind has always been like a giant synthesizing machine. So sometimes people say to me, hey, what book is really doing something for you right now? Part of me is like, oh gosh, I don't really want to answer that question because I'm just like taking stuff in from all kinds of things and the synthesis is at work. Then I might go, oh, well, that book was, that part of that book was helpful, or this part of that book, or this idea or something. For me, it's always been that synthetic work. And that synthetic work, I think, is basically what people are like systematicians kind of do. But for me, as as I said, it's not just about doing that synthetic work for the sake of doing it. That synthesizing work is also connected to questions about, and it means what? It works out how for us. We live it out how. So for me, that that's really kind of, how I sort of say over time have kind of thought about how to articulate what it is that I'm doing or arguably what it is that I was kind of understanding was sort of my thing, if you will. But how do you talk about that? So now I can talk about it more clearly. Uh, if you'd asked me when I was in seminary, I was like, well, you know, these doctrines connected to this, connected to this, connected to this. And now I'll just say, well, it's about living faith, which means yeah, I'm thinking about what you believe, how you synthesize it, and how that synthesis leads to a way of going about life and, and engaging the different dimensions of our lives. So it's theology and ethics together. So that's how I talk about it now. And, and of course, I do it in the classroom. I do it interpersonally. I do it in preaching. I do it in writing. That's really sort of the, the ways of expressing that. I really like that clarity on that and the the synthesis I think is great and I think a great way to wrap up this episode. Dr. Baycoat, thank you so much for being on. Is there a place where people can go to find your books or articles or your podcast? VincentBaycoat.com. That's the main place for going to my Wheaton College page. Great. We'll make sure to put a link to that in our show notes. Again, Dr. Baycoat, thanks so much for being on today. It's a delight. 
Simply Why is brought to you by Indiana Wesleyan University. IWU is a nationally renowned, Christ-centered academic community dedicated to providing leading, innovative education opportunities for students of all ages, backgrounds, and life stages. To learn more about IWU's online, on-site, and hybrid programs, visit indwes.edu. And make sure to follow us on social media as well. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.